everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with just the zoo of us. This is your favorite animal review podcast where we take your favorite animals and review them and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts. We do a lot of research and try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy sources. That's right. This week, I go first, and I am bringing a lot of information. <laughs> this is a science-heavy episode. I've got a lot of science in mind. Do you have a lot of science in yours? None. No science? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all made up. No. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm going to sit back and just listen. I mean, you're also going to talk, Oh, right? yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be part of the audience on this one. This is going to be a solo hour. It's just me <laughs> talking to nobody. I go first this week. I'm really excited to share with you because this is absolutely mind-blowing stuff. All right, hit you're us gonna with love it. it. This week, I'm talking about the ice fish. Okay. These are fish in the family Chanichthyidae. So it's a whole family. This fish was requested by Courtney Guck via Twitter. And I will say this was as a result of this fish being in the news a lot recently. Um, something big was discovered about this fish. So it's been all over the news. And so Courtney requested that we do an episode on them in response to how often they've been in the news. All right. Really exciting stuff. Gotta strike while the iron is hot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Really gotta get on that trending hashtag. Right. Yeah. So I'm getting my information from the New York Times, HHMI Biointeractive, And various sources that I will cite as they come up because they are scientific articles whose titles will give it away. Yes, as they always do. (laughs) Yes, they're very straightforward. So if I tell you them now, you will know exactly what I'm going to say. There's no air of mystery to those. I wish there was. I wish they'd have a little more fun with it. (laughs) So for the ice fish, they are fish who are about 25 to 50 centimeters, which is about 10 to 20 inches long. So they're not like that big. They're not tiny, but they're not that big either. Average fish size, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, like what you'd expect from a fish size, I guess. They are found in the Southern Ocean, which is the ocean surrounding Antarctica. Oh. So the Southern Ocean is the one that goes all the way around the South Pole. And then these fish are found mostly close to the sea floor. Hmm. So they're way deep down in the super, super cold waters of the Antarctic area. Like I said, they're a family of fish. So there's 33 species of ice fish. That's according to the World Register of Marine Species. Now, there's another family of fish also called ice fish. Mm -hmm. But they're also known as noodle fish because they resemble noodles and are often eaten in a manner similar to noodles. As in just like a bowl full of these little noodly fish that you just eat right out of the bowl. They are not at all related to these ice fish. Right. I'm talking about the family Chanichthyidae. There's so much going on with, you know, like whenever we talk about an animal that lives in a very extreme environment, you know something is popping off with this animal, right? Like they've had to do something bizarre with their body to live in a place that's very difficult to live in. Very specialized. Highly specialized. And that is absolutely the case with this animal. So 
I'm going to get right into our ratings for the ice fish. First up is effectiveness. If this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, these are the categories we rate animals in. The first is effectiveness. This is physical adaptations. So things about the animal's actual body that let it do a good job of surviving, thriving, doing a good job at being a fish. I give this one a nine out of 10. That's pretty high. Animals that I guess are extremophiles, I usually rate pretty high because you have to be doing something really, really well to be living there. Yeah. You can't just like get by, you know, Mm. you got to really be pushing it to the limit to live in the Southern Ocean. So I want to talk about the ice fishes adaptations to extreme cold. Their blood contains antifreeze. Oh, Yes. So their blood has these proteins in it that's called antifreeze glycoproteins. And it works in a really interesting way. The way it works is that the proteins bind to ice crystals when they begin to form. Hmm. And they kind of coat the ice crystal and prevent it from gathering more ice crystals and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Hmm. So when ice crystals start to form, these glycoproteins kind of like glomp onto it so that no more ice grows and the fish doesn't freeze. That's pretty cool. It is really, really cool. So this fish is immune to being frozen, Hmm. like cannot be inflicted with the frozen condition at all. (laughs) I think in Pokemon, if you're an ice type, you can't be frozen. That sounds right. So there you go. That's an actual real life ice type right here. Ah. Now, other fish in their like larger group, which is called notothenioids, they also have this antifreeze protein. It's just like a thing a lot of fish have had to develop in order to survive in freezing waters. Mm -hmm. Naturally, you don't want your blood to freeze. That would be really bad. You would die. Bedtime. No, bad time. So can't be doing that. But this family, the Chanicthiidae, specifically went a step further (laughs) in really just like going wild with their blood situation. Their blood is completely clear rather than red. It's transparent. If you collect blood from their veins, it looks like water. That's because (laughs) they don't have hemoglobin. Okay. Like none. No hemoglobin at all. Why are you smiling? I was thinking of Crystal Pepsi. (laughs) This is actually where they get Crystal Pepsi. Not a lot of people know that, but these fish are at risk of overfishing because of Crystal Pepsi. That's a joke, (laughs) by the way. I hope that's what it's actually called, too. What, Crystal Pepsi? That's what it's called, right? You mean the soda? Yeah. That is what the soda is called. That is not what the fish's blood is called. Why would they? I mean, we've heard equally odd things named. That's true. We are coming off the the heels of Sonic Hedgehog. So, yeah, you're right. I don't know. It could have been. I'm not sure. It's just blood. It has no hemoglobin in it. So, hemoglobin is the protein that is found in red blood cells of every other vertebrate. So like you and me have hemoglobin in our red blood cells. It's what makes the red blood cell red. The job of the hemoglobin is to carry the oxygen in the blood. So it's kind of like inventory slots that Mm -hmm. you put oxygen in. So it's made up of lots and lots of iron. 
in humans, not having enough hemoglobin in your blood is a condition called anemia, and it is not good. It causes weakness and fatigue, and it's just not good for you. But the ice fish has really committed to being anemic. Like, that's part of their whole deal now. They were just like, you know what? We're not doing hemoglobin anymore. Hemoglobin is over. So there are kind of a couple of different ideas about why ice fish lost their hemoglobin. Hmm. The first idea, the one that during my research I found the most commonly cited is that hemoglobin makes the blood thicker and more viscous. So it causes the blood to kind of clump when it gets to these freezing temperatures. So the idea is that hemoglobin causes the blood to not flow as well in these really, really cold temperatures. So losing hemoglobin allows the blood to flow more quickly through the veins. But then the second kind of more recent idea is that the hemoglobin is made up of lots and lots of iron. So the body needs to use a lot of iron to produce it. But Mm -hmm. where the ice fish lives, there isn't enough iron for them to take in. So they just couldn't get enough iron to keep making hemoglobin. So they just stopped. Mm. Like they were like, oh, we don't have enough iron available to us in our ecosystem to keep making this very, very like iron heavy sort of thing in their body. So they were just like, you know what? We don't have the iron for it. Let's just not do it. Hmm. I got that particular explanation from a paper titled Vascular Expression of Hemoglobin Alpha in Antarctic Ice Fish Supports Iron Limitation as Novel Evolutionary Driver by Corliss et al. published in November 2019 in Frontiers in Physiology. November 2019. That's Mm. like really recent. So to clarify, the fish, does the fish have zero hemoglobin or just, okay. So, you know, the primary purpose of blood, right, is to transport oxygen normally. Mm -hmm. And I know you're going to get to this a little later about Mm -hmm. what's filling in that function now, but what does that leave the blood doing anything? Yeah, it is still transporting oxygen, just much, much less. I think a figure that I saw said about 10% as much as there would have been if they had hemoglobin. Okay. Yeah. Drastically reduces the efficiency of their blood. You're right. They need to make up for it. They still need oxygen to survive. Mm -hmm. Still got to do that. So they reallocated their skill points and (laughs) basically made some pretty major modifications to their body to make up for it. Mm. So first of which is that their heart and their blood vessels are enormous, like four to five times the size of the heart and blood vessels you'd see in other fish of a similar size. Mm. This allows them to just pump tons of blood at a time. And they're able to like hold more blood in their bodies. Their blood volume is massive and they're just doing a lot more with their blood, I guess. Since they don't have as much oxygen in it, they have to kind of work harder to get the same amount of oxygen out of their blood. Mm. Their gills are also really, really huge. Let's them take in a lot more oxygen from the water when they're breathing it in. And also, this is really weird. They have no scales on their body. Their whole body, no scales. Okay. And this lets them actually take in oxygen directly through their skin. So from the water around them, they're actually taking in. It's not a lot. Right. Um, it's not very much. It's not nearly as much as like what their gills take in, but it helps. It's like a supplement, basically. It's like a little extra oxygen hmm. coming in through their skin. Now, this is interesting. I didn't know this, but at low temperatures, oxygen is more soluble in water. So cold water hmm. has more oxygen in it than warm water does. That's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? 
I would have thought that, but no. So the super, super cold water that they live in has tons of oxygen in it. So they're able to actually like take in a good bit of oxygen from the water around them because there's just a lot there. That type of environment, I guess, is a little more forgiving to not having hemoglobin because they're able to get a lot of oxygen from that heavily oxygenated water Mm. around them. And I got that info on like their blood and their vascular system from this paper called When Bad Things Happen to Good Fish. Oh, no. (laughs) I know. (laughs) The loss of hemoglobin and myoglobin expression in Antarctic ice fishes. And that is by Bruce D. Seidel and Kristen M. O'Brien. That was published in May of 2006 in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Now, that article had a nice little flair of drama in it. A little. There's a sprinkling of it. (laughs) Just a little bit. When bad things happen to good fish. Like, there's your hook right there, right? Yeah. Well, I found this paper really fascinating because the gist of what I got from it is that it did not have to be like this for the ice (laughs) fish. And this is actually why I gave them a 9 out of 10 instead of a 10. Oh. There are other types of fish, like toothfish, rock cod. Uh, There are types of fish that live in the same water as these fish. Mm -hmm. They have hemoglobin and they're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's not that big a deal. (laughs) So my, my read on the situation is that they lost the hemoglobin maybe by accident (laughs) and then had to just, and we're like, Oh oh, no, what do we do now? And then had to like, overhaul their cardiovascular system to make up for (laughs) this like severe permanent anemia that they've built into their body so it seems like maybe it wasn't helpful but it also (laughs) wasn't lethal yeah i mean they're still here like it's a very energetically costly adaptation because when you're lowering the efficiency of your blood you have to make up for it in like pumping your heart harder and having bigger organs and like it's very energetically costly. Sure. So that, I think that's why they titled it When Bad Things Happen to Good Fish because this loss of hemoglobin seems to have been all around an L for the ice fish. <laughs> it reminds me of this conversation I had recently with Dr. Corey Evans when he came on and talked about flatfish and was talking about how the flatfish like rotated their body 90 degrees, <laughs> you know, to like flatten themselves. But he was like, yeah, other fish did the same thing, but in an easier way. (laughs) Like, it didn't have to be this complicated. And, like, they just took a very, very complicated path to get to the same end result. Yeah. And that's kind of the idea of, like, evolution will get you an answer, but not necessarily the (laughs) best answer. Like, it's not going to be the most elegant solution, but it's going to get you there. (laughs) Can't uh, unpour the concrete. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you can't go backwards, you know? Like, if you make a mistake, you can't just, like, go back and, like, unevolve it and then do it better. (laughs) Control Z. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... It obviously is doing enough for them that they're able to survive in this environment and it's not Mm. hurting them. It just seems like it's like they're playing on expert mode. You know, like they really kind of gave themselves a much bigger barrier. It's wild stuff. Yeah. (laughs) But so anyway, moving on. Other really cool things about their body. They have no swim bladder. A lot of fish don't have a swim bladder. That's not super surprising. But they also have very low bone density. And their bodies store a lot of lipids. So lipids being like oils and fats and stuff. Yeah. And lipids are less dense than water. So they cause the fish to float. 
and this lets them swim up in the water column when they need to. So they spend most of their time down at the bottom, but when they need to, they come up a little bit to like hunt, search for food. They eat like little fish and krill and stuff. Mm. They eat small, small little fish and so they're predators. Um, so they can swim up the water column if they need to. They're not like stuck at the bottom. <laughs> Hope not. Yeah. No. So I think the strategy here seemed to be not necessarily to defend themselves from predators, but to survive in an area where not a lot of predators even bother hunting there. Mm. But not none. Right. Uh, seals. And penguins are hmm. both big predators of ice fish. So seals and penguins are able to like survive the cold and dive deep enough where they can get the ice fish. Hmm. So seals and penguins will prey on them. Also, having scaleless skin doesn't exactly do well for your defenses. Right. You know, like you're going to be pretty easy to chomp right up. Another thing about living in these really hostile areas is that there's really not a lot of competition with other species. Hmm. This has to do with the history of the continent of Antarctica. The seas around Antarctica weren't always as cold as they are now. They used to be warmer. Antarctica used to be connected to the tip of South America. Makes sense. So it was kind of like just stuck right on the end of South America. And then about 34 million years ago, Antarctica snapped off and drifted south. So when Antarctica parted from South America, the currents that were running like up and down those coasts started to go in a circle around Antarctica because hmm. they no longer had that sort of coastline to follow. So they just started going in a circle. So when the currents started circling around Antarctica, it isolated that ocean from those like warmer waters around it. And it got colder and colder and colder. So the waters there that used to be pretty warm were suddenly now like freezing. So that resulted in this like mass die off, like tons of species of fish that used to live there went extinct because it got too cold for them and they couldn't hang basically. Right. Like they used to be fine, too cold. They either left and went somewhere else or they went extinct. So ice fish were just kind of among the very few who like improvised, adapted and overcame and were able to stay there in the Antarctic area, leaving them under not a lot of competitive pressure because there's not a lot else out there that's trying to eat the same prey as them. And I feel like that kind of gave them a lot of freedom to get pretty silly with their <laughs> adaptations. You know, like I feel like that gave them some wiggle room. Right. Because it's like you don't really have to outcompete a lot of other stuff. So, you know, I think that kind of gave them the leniency. The end result is these extreme and energetically costly adaptations that in any other environment, these things would die like immediately, <laughs> right? Because they're relying on the cold temperature of the water, which makes the water oxygen rich enough that they can survive without hemoglobin, mm -hmm. you know? So like that very, very specific set of circumstances <laughs> allows them to have this like very bizarre body extremely tailored to this very specific place, which is good because not a lot else can live there. So they kind of have the run of the place. For sure. So the next category we rate animals on is ingenuity. And for those listening for the first time, this is behavioral adaptations that let the animal solve problems it faces or, you know, do a good job of stuff. For ingenuity, I'm giving the ice fish a seven out of 10, which doesn't sound like that high. 
because there's not a lot known about what they're up to like on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But this is actually why they've been in the news. Okay. So for background information, unlike a lot of fish who just kind of lay their eggs and peace out, Antarctic ice fish make nests. It's a circular nest on the seafloor. They lay their eggs in the middle. And then the male ice fish stays on the nest and he actively guards it. Mm -hmm. So if anything gets close to his nest, he will chase it off. Um, He also fans water over the eggs with his fins to keep the water flowing around it, keep them aerated. He'll clear away debris that settles on the nest. So he's like taking good care of the nest. Mm -hmm. He is being a great dad. And then they make them close to other ice fish nests. So what you end up with is like a breeding colony. Hmm. The ones that were already known about were like 10, 12, 20, couple tens, couple dozens of nests all together in these breeding colonies. Until February of 2021, findings were captured by a remote operated camera on the research ship RV Polarstern. This was in the Weddell Sea in the Southern Ocean. And what they found was a colony of ice fish nests, specifically of the species Neopagetopsis iona, which is Jonah's ice fish, but not just the couple dozen or so that had been documented in the past. This was an expanse of ice fish nests that went on and on and on for miles. They mapped out the breeding colony and found it to be 240 square kilometers, which is almost 150 square miles of ice fish nests, and they estimated it to contain 60 million active nests. And that's one ice fish per nest. That's so many. (laughs) Yes! So for, for perspective, this breeding colony of ice fish nests is bigger than the cities, not put together individually, of Las Vegas, Atlanta, or Orlando, Florida. Wow. Yeah. Any one of those cities, this breeding colony is bigger than that city. That's insane. Yes. Imagine (laughs) that you're like driving under that little thing that says, welcome to Orlando. And it's just fish nests (laughs) for the whole city. If you've ever driven through Orlando, you know that's a lot. Except I'm sure you wouldn't have to uh, drive through toll roads to get through the ice fish colony. So maybe they've got it figured out better than we do. So this is like discovering like fish Atlantis, basically. It's like you get down there and there's, because they had no idea this stuff was down there. You know, like no Mm -hmm. clue. It was total surprise. Did they name it? You know, I didn't look like they did have like a name specifically for it. Mm. This information was published January 13th of this year. So that was like, that was 10 days ago as of us recording this. Wow. Yeah. So this is like very fresh findings. So this ice fish breeding colony is so interesting because it means that there's an entire unique ecosystem just like flourishing in this one little pocket of the Southern Ocean in the Weddell Sea. This could support granting legal protections to this area as a conservation site. Mm-hmm. It's basically an all-you-can-eat buffet for the Weddell seal, which has been documented preferentially diving in this spot. Like, it knows that the ice fish are down there, and it's going down there to eat them. Right. Intentionally. So this is like a big hot spot for Weddell seals. There's also tons of decomposers and scavengers that live in this area because they'll come, and like, if an ice fish dies on the nest, they come and eat it and eat the eggs, you know? like. Yeah. 
so this is still a pretty fresh discovery and not a lot is known about the like nest dynamics just quite yet. But more research is still being done to see what's going on down there. And if you want more details on what they found, the findings are published in Current Biology. And the title of the paper is A Vast Icefish Breeding Colony Discovered in the Antarctic by Auten Purser et al. Is there pictures and video available? There are so many pictures, Good. yes. And there's videos. It's really cool. Awesome. It is. It's so cool. <laughs> it's like, I already feel like the ocean floor has such a specific alien vibe about it. Mm-hmm. Like, that is what it's what it looks like. It looks like you're like watching the Mars rover, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> fine yeah. alien There's that. It's the cliche saying that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the bottom of our ocean. Yeah, and this seems like just another example of that, you know, because they had no clue, Mm. first of all, that there was an ice fish breeding colony anywhere near this scale. And second of all, that there was like a Las Vegas-sized breeding colony of fish on the bottom of the ocean. It's one of those things where it's like the ocean is not nearly as boring as it might seem because there's just so much we don't know about right, it. Yeah. So there's so much to be found. It's so cool. and so exciting. Mm-hmm. So that's why ice fish have been all over the news recently is because turns out they're up to a lot down there. <laughs> they have got some stuff going on. <laughs> a final category for ice fish is aesthetics. I'm actually only going to give them a four out of 10. This okay. is not their strong suit. This is not the most gorgeous fish in the ocean, in my opinion. <laughs> they do have this long protruding mouth that does look like the snout of a crocodile. And this gives them the nickname crocodile fish or crocodile ice fish. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of cool looking. Like, it's pretty neat. I think it, it's very distinct. Like, hmm. it looks like like a shoe, maybe, almost, on the front of their face. Hmm. But the scaleless skin and the clear blood make the fish pretty much transparent. Like, you can look at it and see through, like, its skull and brain and organs and stuff. so its skin is see-through as well, then? Yeah. Now, okay, so you can see through to the organs and stuff, but because its blood is clear, its organs are not, like, fleshy pink Mm -hmm. like you would expect them to be. They're just, like, white. They look like fat, really. They, they look like when you cut into, like, a fish and you see, like, the fat on mm. it. It looks like that. When I saw videos of them, I couldn't really differentiate the organs and stuff because there's no color to it, right? right. So at least that doesn't, doesn't look like you're looking at the pink, like, organ stuff. It doesn't right. look like that. But they look very skeletal. They look like a ghost of a fish. Mm. They have kind of like bony, angular kind of look about them, which is a common aesthetic in the deep, cold ocean. If you looked at one, you would immediately say, that's a deep ocean fish right there. (laughs) I know exactly. That is one of those guys that lives down there in the dark place where nobody has to look at them. So wrapping up for the ice fish, there's only one species of ice fish that has a status on the IUCN red list. It is the pike ice fish, and it's listed as vulnerable. So... Back to what I said about being so, like, specifically adapted to living in very specific conditions. Mm -hmm. They rely really heavily on that water being cold enough to have a high oxygen content that they need to get enough oxygen in their body because of their lack of hemoglobin. So that means that if those temperatures rise, the oxygen levels will fall and they won't be able to get in as much oxygen in their body. 
Rising ocean temperatures is one of the things you hear a lot about, climate change and global warming. Like, one of the big deals is, you know, ocean temperatures rising. So this is one of those species that's, like, in a position to very quickly go extinct due to climate change. It looks like it hasn't really been assessed, like, what their population trends are looking like right now, other than the pike icefish, which their situation is a little bit also related to, like, commercial fishing. Hmm. So yeah, we just found out a lot of ridiculously cool stuff about this really mysterious animal. So I guess my sort of parting message is to just be good stewards of the earth so that we can continue learning about what's going on down there in their secret uh, sprawling metropolis. Yes. Clearly they're hiding some stuff. <laughs> we got to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> that's the ice fish. Thanks, honey. Thank you. That's good stuff. It's very science heavy. I hope that wasn't boring. No, not at all. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends over on the Maximum Fun Network. And then when we get back, we'll talk about your animal. One, two, one, two, three, five. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors. and Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor and I'm a medical enthusiast. And we create okay. Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest, Tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. And lately we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster. But it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is a podcast. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. That thing is not my daughter. And I want you to tell me there's a show where the hosts don't just report on French science and spirituality, but take part themselves. Well, there is, and it's Ono, Ross, and Carrie on Maximum Fun. This year, we actually became certified exorcists. So yes, Carrie and I can help your daughter. Or we can just talk about it on the show. Ono, Ross, and Carrie on MaximumFun.org. So, darling, tell me about your animal for this week. This week, I'm bringing the common wombat. Yes. Scientific name, Vombatus ursinus. Vombatus. Yes. That sounds like just wombat with a V. It does. <laughs> I have no further information about that. Okay. <laughs> None needed. <laughs> so wombat had been requested by Laura Coleman via email. Thank you, Laura. Yes, thanks, Laura. And when Laura sent this email in, my initial response was, oh, I'll just send over a link to our wombat episode that we definitely have done. <laughs> turns out, no, we have not. I think we had the same thought. I know. We both looked at each other. We were like, surely we must have. It was the quokka, I think. Yeah. It's because it's so similar aesthetically. You mistook it for the quokka. I mistook it for the echidna. Really? Yeah. I had it mixed up with the echidna huh, in my okay. head. Okay. But yeah, uh, so wombat was requested, but there are actually three species of wombat. I went with the common wombat. And I'll be getting information from Animal Diversity Web, National Geographic, and a couple other things along the way. So I want to describe what they look like. So first and foremost, they are marsupial mammals. They're large, squat, with a rounded head and stubby tail and small, round ears. 
I think you need to pepper in the word round a few more times to really hammer home how round these guys are. pretty round. I can appreciate that. This is a globular animal. (laughs) Uh, Their adult size might be a little surprising uh, for those of us who have not been around a wombat. So 70 to 110 centimeters long or 28 to 43 inches long. That's really big. Yeah. 20 to 35 kilograms or 44 to 77 pounds. It's like large dog size. It's like... How much Isaac weighs? <laughs> <laughs> That's like if he curled up in a ball. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah, if they're you, big. I think for most of my life, I had always assumed that they were maybe mm, cat-sized. Right. They're not. They're nope. huge. They're big. They're way bigger. It wasn't until like later in life when I saw a video of one with like next to a human being. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're pretty huge. big. They can be found in Australia, specifically Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Flinders Island, Tasmania, and South Australia. Sounds like coastal areas. The southeast part of Australia along the coast, basically. Taxonomically speaking, they belong to the family Vombatidae. Bet I could guess what's in that family. Yeah. So all three extant species of wombat are in this family, though this is the only one in its genus. The other two species are called the northern and southern hairy-nosed wombats. Hairy-nosed? A common wombat doesn't have hair on its renarium or the part of the nose that looks wet on like a dog and that kind of animal. I didn't know there was a word for that. There is. Oh, a renarium? Is <laughs> yes. that what you said? Or rhinarium, perhaps. Oh, okay, okay. R-H-I-N-A-R-I-U-M. Sounds like a rye. Yeah. Rhinarium because yes. like rhinoceros. Yes. Whereas those other two wombat species... Have hair on Yes. Them. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. So jumping right into the first category of effectiveness, I'm giving a 7 out of 10. That's pretty good. So first up is their digging ability. They have strong claws that are used to dig burrows. So these are burrowing creatures. Mm, doing a lot of underground work. Yes. They make these really big and intricate burrows underground. Their claws are like really sharp too, by the way. Like, yeah. Excellent for digging. Yeah, they can do some serious damage. Like <laughs> a lot of times when people post like pictures or videos of wombats, the response is always like, I want one, I want to hug it, Mm-mm. I want to cuddle with it. <laughs> and it's like, I feel like if you got a better look at the claws, you might not feel that way because yeah. they're like knives. <laughs> so it's a big animal that burrows, so it has to move a lot of dirt. <laughs> That's true, Yeah. <laughs> So the next thing I want to talk about is their teeth. Uh, So unlike most marsupials, they have rodent-like incisors Mm. that grow continuously. Oh, wow. Yeah. But they're not rodents. They're not. Though you might think that's what they are looking at them. Yeah, now that you say that, they definitely do have Mm -hmm. a lot of rodent-like features. Maybe that's why I thought they were so small. Right. And I think their facial structure reminds me of a koala a little bit. Mm. Just, Just a little bit. It's like halfway between a koala and like a hamster. Right. It's interesting. And then, of course, you can't talk about a marsupial without talking about their pouch. Yes. So Um, good. So like other marsupials, it gives birth to a small joey that continues to develop in the pouch. So when they're born, they're very underdeveloped and very small, but then they make their way into the pouch to develop further. It's very similar to pregnancy. It's just that rather than keeping the baby inside your body the whole time, the baby develops outside of your body. The gestational period was like 30 days or something. Oh, yeah, 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 because they basically just like... Like a jelly bean when they come out. Yeah, they're so tiny. They're not 
like when they're like born, uh-huh. they're you know a tiny little fetus yeah. of a thing. So they're they're going into the pouch to feed on the mother's milk. Mm-hmm. So, but here's what's interesting about their pouch. Normally, when you think of a marsupial with a pouch, you're thinking of a kangaroo, right? Mm-hmm. But unlike a kangaroo, their pouch opens backwards. Backwards. Yes. So like pointing down. Yeah, towards their hind. Okay, like area. towards their butt. The big reason is because they're a burrowing animal. That makes sense. <laughs> so that they're not filling up their pouch with dirt. That's so <laughs> obvious now that you say that out loud. Right. <laughs> but like, I wouldn't have thought about that at all. But that's really funny because like, I would imagine they had to like somehow twist it around because other marsupials. Wait, don't koalas have a ba- backwards facing pouch, but for I think a different so. reason? I don't remember now, though. I think so, though. I'm pretty sure the koala had the backwards pouch so that the baby could, like, eat bacteria from the mom's poop. Yeah, that sounds right. Speaking of poop. Yes, please. (laughs) Oh, God, wombat poop. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't see this coming. Last thing I had about is their cubic poop. Yes, please. So their their poop is cube-shaped. Famously. not like totally certain as to the purpose or if there is a purpose one idea is one way they communicate is through smells perhaps if they use their feces to kind of mark territory or what have you being cube shaped means it doesn't roll away as easily i was thinking that yeah yeah it's just (laughs) it's just targeted disrespect towards dung beetles So, and just to clarify, you know, it is exiting their body in this shape. It's not right. like exiting their body and they're shaping it or something. No, it's yeah. not. <laughs> they're not sitting there sculpting their poop. I'll make an igloo out of these. <laughs> like <they're> bricks? <laughs> That's nasty. That's where that phrase comes. No, probably not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah, and, you know, just talking about their digestive, it's it's a lot like any other animal that eats grasses and tubers and very fibrous vegetation. Mm-hmm. So it has that, like, the hindgut fermentation type Oh, cool. Digestion. Did you at all get into, like, the way that the intestine shapes the poop? No, but I saw that that anatomy is the reason it does come out that shape. It's just mm-hmm. the, the purpose is what's not so clear. Hi, it's me jumping in real quick to expand on this a little bit because I wanted to give a little more detail and cite a very important source in a paper titled Intestines of Non-Uniform Stiffness Mold the Corners of Wombat Feces by Patricia Yang et al. in the journal Soft Matter on December 8th of 2020, scientists examined cross-sections of intestines from wombat cadavers and found that the walls of the intestines are made up of sections, some of which are thicker and stiffer, and the others are thinner and more stretchy. So when the intestines contract, when the wombat is pooping, the thicker and stiffer segments get squeezed into these tight corners, while the thinner and more stretchy segments kind of tamp down the sides, resulting in the iconic cube shape. So thank you, scientists, for getting to the bottom of wombat bottoms. All right, back to it. Our next category of ingenuity, I'm giving a 7 out of 10. They have some interesting butt defensive maneuvers. (laughs) (laughs) So when they're in a burrow, they like to use their hind quarters as a kind of defense mechanism. So uh, to like block off a tunnel or even like use it to bash into something trying to chase them in their burrow. Mm, A buttering ram. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> you stop it. <laughs> um, and combine that with also some very powerful hind leg kicks, kind of like a donkey. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I mean, paired with, you know, those giant claws, Mm -hmm. it's all around an animal you don't want to be standing behind. Yep. I hinted at this before, but they have communication through scent marking, vocalizations, and aggressive displays. Don't they make a weird sound? I didn't come across that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Because koalas make a weird sound. They do. I wonder if wombats make the same weird sound. I'll drop a sound bite of whatever sound it is that wombats (laughs) make. And then getting into our final category of aesthetics, I'm giving a 6 out of 10. Okay. That's harsh, I feel uh, like. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of have to reset my my uh, baseline, right? Whereas a 5 is a standard, right? Uh, yeah. Average. Realistically, though, like know. in the way that people use that scale. My arbitrary reasoning is better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just kidding. So this is actually where I found something I was not expecting. Yeah. And that is biofluorescence. Absolutely. Please tell me about this. Because you you led me on. (laughs) So first, I wanted to kind of describe a learning journey I took personally about the difference between biofluorescence and bioluminescence. You took me on this journey with you. So bioluminescence is where a living creature will emit visible light. Right. Like a Uh, firefly. Yes. Whereas biofluorescence is where an animal will take in a short wavelength light and it gets reflected off of them as a longer wavelength light. The best example of this is where if you shine a UV black light on something, it reflects off as a visible light, Mm. whereas UV is not visible. I see. I see. To us, at least. But the reflection brings it into that visible range. Right. Interesting. I know that scorpions are biofluorescent. Yes. If you shine a black light, you'll see scorpions like glow Mm -hmm. bright white Mm -hmm. under a black light. Yep. It's kind of funny how they found out about wombats. (laughs) So in 2020, there was an article published titled Biofluorescence in the Platypus. And that was in the Mammalia Journal. Okay. So that article was talking about how platypus was the first monotreme discovered to have biofluorescence. That had people asking, well, what other mammals are biofluorescent? As naturally you would. <laughs> so what happened is a lot of museums that have like specimens of these, like taxidermied specimens or preserved specimens, started checking. <laughs> <laughs> I like to imagine that they just ran into their specimen room with a black light and just like opened every yeah, drawer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just like waving the black light over every drawer they've got. Like, surely one of y'all. <laughs> so enter the wombat with this guy, Kenny Trevulian, uh, who is the paleontology and curator of mammalogy at the Western Australian Museum. Uh, he had such this, he had this exact idea, borrowed a UV flashlight from their arachnid department. Cause as you mentioned, the oh, yeah. biofluorescence is a thing with lots of arachnids. Yeah. And they just started shining lights at their specimens. <laughs> and wombat is one of them that they found. Oh my 
Dude, that, that had to have been a fantastic day. You yeah. know, just like shining the flashlight at whatever and just seeing what shines back. Right. That had to have yeah. been incredible. I bet that sounds like so much fun. Yep. I'm imagining like all over the world, like zookeepers and museum curators, like sitting down with their cup of coffee mm. for the morning. They check their Twitter. They see this paper that says, guess what, guys? Platypus biofluorescent. And they're like, huh <laughs> they slowly turn and look behind them and they're like i wonder because <laughs> well, you would ha- you would otherwise have no reason to look at these kinds of things with a black light right true yeah but also like what purpose does that serve for like practically for the animal like i saw some conversation about that there's some ideas um it could be i guess ability to see each other like identify other members of its species or something. Because I don't think a lot of mammals have receptors in their eyes that could detect that range of light, right? Like ultraviolet light. Well, something they noticed is all they, they checked all, a lot of the mammals mm-hmm. in their exhibits and they noticed none of the carnivores had this. Oh, so interesting. That, so if, the, if a mammal like a wombat can see in the uv range a predator would not want to have that because then they would be more easily identifiable to their prey right interesting yeah huh just some ideas around that um and then finally for aesthetics i feel i think they look a little teddy bear-esque yeah that's the right word yeah i think why people want to cuddle them so bad (laughs) they're so round they're an orb Mm -mm. I'm good. Are you going to mention uh, Lost Ember, the game? What is? I don't know what you're okay. talking about. There's this indie video game called Lost Ember. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's very artsy. And in this game, you can play as like a lot of different animals. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you start as like a wolf fox looking thing. I can't really tell if it's a wolf or a fox, but you start as that and then you can like take the form of all these different animals throughout the course of the game. And then every time you take the form of a different animal, you use a different like form of locomotion. So like when you're a wolf, you're running, but then you can jump into like a hummingbird and do these little like darting fly. You can be a fish so that you can swim down a waterfall. And one of the animals you can turn into and be is a wombat. (laughs) And the special locomotion you get as a wombat is that you roll into a ball and roll down hills. It's so fun. (laughs) It's really cute. So if you really want to play a video game as a playable wombat, check out Lost Ember. That's awesome. That makes me wonder if if there was something I missed about them rolling down hills or something. I don't think it was based on (laughs) anything in particular. I think it was just for funsies. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, Conservation status is least concern. They're doing pretty good. They are preyed upon by things like dogs. They seem to be able to handle themselves against a single dog, but if it's a pack, they're... Sure. Yeah. Yeah, dingoes are really good at, like, hunting in pack. Mm-hmm. And they're often hunted as vermin species by mm. farmers, because their burrowing can cause damage to the land, particularly for crops, but also leave hazardous holes for livestock to, oh. to trip over. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but also yeah. that poor... And then also, like, digging tunnels under fences and stuff that that you're trying to keep other things out of it's the exact same problem that folks around here have with moles just like a hundred times bigger way bigger hole (laughs) (laughs) same problem just enormous (laughs) 
So yeah, that's the wombat. What a delightful creature. <laughs> not huggable though. Do not hug. I won't at least. I'm not going to do it. Great job, honey. Thanks. Well, thank you to everybody for listening. It has been a delight to have you all along with us. I hope that you enjoyed it. And also, I hope that you enjoyed it enough to leave us a good review or rating on your podcatcher. We really like it when you people do that. So please keep doing it. It's very nice. I hope we've earned five stars from you. Uh, You can hang out with us on social media or shoot us an email. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. So send me a message if you have a cool animal that you'd like to hear about. Uh, We would like to say thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other awesome shows like the ones that you heard promos for. You can check them out and also learn more about the network and sign up for a membership to support us and the rest of the shows on the network over at MaximumFun.org. Uh, finally, we'd like to say thank you to Louis Zong for our incredible theme music. It's so good. And I would like to thank you, Christian. Me? Yeah, for being a good co-host Aww. and watching all the TikToks that I send you. Because <laughs> it's a lot. That's a full-time job there. <laughs> How do you think I feel? <laughs> I'm the one in the trenches. <laughs> You're filtering sort of. out the bad TikToks. I know. <laughs> I'm the switchboard operator mm. that's sending you only the best of the best. So thank you for watching all of the 70 TikToks that I send you per hour. <laughs> thank you. That's all for this week. See y'all later. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.